Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Paul, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Yeah, not too bad. It's been a busy week, but um, it was kind of nice to dive into Ignite and just check out what was going on there and not be part of the madness of running an online event and kind of do normal work at the same time. (laughs) Put your feet up and take a deep breath, I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, like it's, I mean, it's always exciting to see Sacha talk about the broader Microsoft stuff that as a techie at heart, seeing some of the new things they announced was always, you know, it's always fun to see and see what the bigger direction of Microsoft is doing and pop our head up outside of kind of developer M365 dev platform stuff, which is where my world is, especially coming, you know, I did that stint in the Azure PaaS place as well, just to see what they're doing and how they're evolving there too. So that was fun to kind of consume the keynote and check in there. How about you? Yeah, I can't do the remote conferences. That's There's too many distractions between stuff at the house or, or the work. You know, I find when I go to a, if I was in Vegas in the conference room or in the, in the keynote room, that's all I would have paid attention to, you know, so. But it's on my list to go back and watch the, the recordings and stuff uh, uh, of that. But yeah, I agree. It's nice to, to get the big picture direction periodically. It's kind of nice. Although it's kind of odd that, you know, the Ignite was in two parts, which is a little bit different. And I think the the book of news kind of shows that it's not quite as voluminous. So whether that's good or bad, I guess, depends on your point of view. But uh, but yeah, good. Yeah, I think a lot of people are getting fatigue on these events. And, you know, like we've seen a bit of a drop on the podcast, people are finding it hard with the challenges of work from home and of having time to carve out to consume stuff like this. So you know, I think build, you'll see a similar thing too, where less content, more focus on what's really, really important and not just like full cover of everything that we've announced that having its own breakout session, which I think there's good and bad. I think there are other channels to do some of the stuff that is not deemed as high priority. But so yeah, it's definitely a learning we're having in t- how we run these events. Yeah, and then it'll adapt over time. And as the world eco- economy and the situation changes, it'll adapt, adapt again. I guess that's the new normal, right? Change, change is the new, the new thing. And, and it'd be interesting to see how much it snaps back to the old way versus like maybe some middle ground. Um, it'd be really interesting. There's a lot to be said for being in person. It's totally a pendulum. It's going to swing all the way over. you know. Yeah, it will for sure. <laughs> There'll be some huge event where everyone's like, yeah, we need to go interact with people and speak to customers directly. And then it'd be like, but look yeah. how much that cost us. Quick, let's pivot back to online meetings again. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, if you want to know more about Ignite and you missed it, I, I find the easiest thing, and I think it was Dan Holm pointed this out a few years ago, was there's a book of news. I think it was originally a PDF and now they do it as a web page. And it links off to all like the blog posts and the videos that cover those particular topics. And it's all of Microsoft wide. So you can go look at the Azure news, the M365 news. Um, and so for me, just to call out two things I th- are super useful. One is shared channels. So the ability to have a channel in a team without them having to be a member of the team. So for me, this is great. I do so much cross divisional work where it becomes a logistical nightmare going where do I put a channel where I have these 10 people in it? <laughs> it turns out there's not, the easiest thing to do is just create a brand new team and use the general channel and do it that way. But then you end up with thousands of thousands of teams. And so having a shared channel means that, you know, whoever's driving the initiative all up can have it, but then that channel can be added to other teams where it makes sense by just adding 
um, adding people uniquely there. Um, and so that was one really neat thing. Although infrastructure on the back end, I really empathize with the team that are having to try and work out the permission models, all that stuff. I mean, it goes back to like the breaking inheritance models of SharePoint of old, right? Um, yeah, but you're burying the lead on the shared channels because right now, if you invite me to a team, in order for me to see it, I need to log into the Microsoft tenant. And if it's something out of my MVP, which is an account that I've had for 10 years, that's one. But if it's something with work, it's at N365. So I end up having two different Microsoft views of the world on two different email accounts. Right, right. And the shared Microsoft Teams Connect is what it's called. Uh, here, the shared channels means I don't have to switch over. This that channel will appear in my primary tenant. So if I'm in my work tenant and I can see some Microsoft Teams that I'm a part of, like maybe the podcast, <laughs> boom, there we go. So it makes my life much simpler. I'm not switching back and forth. I hadn't to even the, considered that. There we go. Even even better news. Yes. Ish. <laughs> well, that, that's the partner point of view versus the Microsoft point of view for sure. Because Microsoft doesn't switch. You know. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Need to, we expect everyone to switch into us. <laughs> yeah, when you're the sun and everyone revolves around you, it's a little different point of view. <laughs> but yeah, that's uh, that, that's a. Uh, I can't wait for that to roll. And then the presenter mode thing is also really neat. Like we're doing, there's a lot of V team work happening across Microsoft at the moment where people are sharing the screens, doing presentations and you know, the people cam webcams are so small that it's almost not worth having them on. And some of these new presenter modes where like the screen sharing of the PowerPoint deck is on in like one square of the window but then the faces now are like there's one option where you can have them on the right hand side and they're bigger. Um, and so it really helps when you're trying to have a conversation about whatever's being presented in a PowerPoint deck, but you can actually see the people big enough that you can see their facial expressions of, are they on board? Are they not on board? Um, and so those things are, are really great. It's it's the weather forecaster view, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so what did you find out there? Was there any other Microsoft-y things that you wanted to call out before we jump into the community things? Yeah, so well, the, the show is... Uh, AI focused, right? With our guests. So I found a bunch of, of AI related news that I wanted to highlight. Uh, first one is uh, the form recognizer has been ex extended to do more languages and so on. And so form recognizer is one of the cognitive services. It's kind of the power behind some of the syntax stuff as well, but I can give it a whole bunch of documents that are purchase orders or invoices or whatever, something that, that a lot of things in the same format, and then it'll help it's not just OCR, but it's also putting some structure around the stuff. So it's great to see um, form recognizer getting expanded. I, I love that uh, that that's taking off. Another one I've, is um, a, a blog post I'm including, which is kind of an all-up discussion of Azure AI capabilities. And so this obviously is a it's a uh, it's Eric Boyd, corporate vice president of Azure AI. So it, it's not it's not dive deep in technical details, but it does at least uh, talk about this form recognizer as well as other big picture stuff that's coming down the pipe out of Azure AI and the machine learning and so on. And then the third one I want to call out, it's also mentioned in here, is the cognitive search, which is um, a big thing. Cognitive search historically was uh, recognizing people or recognizing things in a picture. Objects. Yeah. Or objects in a picture, yeah. And so now it's getting this um, semantic search capability, which is kind of advancing along based on what 
the knowledge of what I'm searching for, the natural language models, applying that to search as well, right? So before we've said, well, I can do Lewis to say, what did the person ask and come back with an intent based on a narrow subset of things, right? Because I, I tell dispatch or I tell Lewis, these are the things that I, at my domain space, if you will. But semantic search is saying, I don't know what I'm, what's out there. You tell me what's out there. That's why I'm searching. So it's kind of marrying those two mm-hmm. capabilities, which I think is going to be awesome. So those, that's kind of a, a big chunk of Azure AI stuff that was announced as part of the Ignite stuff. And uh, certainly worth keeping an eye on if you're in that space. Yeah, like all these building blocks are just becoming so much easier to kind of plug in now to your business applications. Your world really is your oyster and really the limitation is your imagination right now, not the tech. But it's going to be fascinating to see how Azure showcase some of these things, like what they what people are building with them, because I think that really starts to inspire people and what else can be built with all this tech. Um, I think sometimes some of our demos are so contrived that they would never be you know, realistically used in the real world, but look, they make for great cool demos. And I think when you start to see the real world ways of these things are being implemented, it's pretty amazing what can be done with the tech once someone kind of rips it to shreds and starts genuinely using it um, in, in, a, in a real world like business application. Yeah, well, and you combine this with all the edge stuff, the Azure edge stuff that has been talked about forever, where I get intelligence in the devices at the edge of the network, combined with cognitive services and so on. And we're getting closer to that that stuff going on. Those demos that we saw back in the day, like you said, maybe weren't, weren't reachable, but I think they will be soon. It's really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah, it is really cool. And then from the community, I just want to give a shout out to um, Andrew Connell, that's obviously close friends with both of us, I've known him for years, but he um, does a lot of amazing training content out there um, on the internet. It's available for you. Some of it's free, some of it's licensed. But a course that he's been working on for a while now, after kind of you know doing SPFX to, to the point where there's probably nothing else you could train it on it, is... Um, a um, on-demand video course of exam prep for the Microsoft 365 Certified Developer Associate course certification. And what he's done is put together like a whole series of videos and, and, and labs and so forth to help you essentially make sure that once you go and do the online exam that you're going to be able to pass it. Um, so it's really neat. Um, you know, I've, I've used these in the past when I was doing certifications as a consultant to because often there isn't a good structured way of like learning all this stuff and so that's i just think is often a great way to kind of have someone else help you through like well if you do all these things technically you're going to be able to pass the exam with whatever 70 percent or whatever it is is required to pass the certification (laughs) and hopefully learn a lot more than 70 percent and absolutely nail and ace the exam um so I definitely recommend checking that out. Yeah, and, and the certification bit has changed, right? So back in the day, the only certs I ever got was because there was a test at an Ignite or a SharePoint conference and I could sit down and do it with no study because I lived it, right? Yeah, true. <laughs> but with the new the new world of certifications like this this Microsoft 365 associate one, you have to you have to know the fundamentals around Microsoft identity and graph, and then uh, you need to have some some conversational proficiency in in a bunch of the workloads as well. So it's not just one thing that you're that you have to test on to prove that uh, that you can do Microsoft 365 development. Yeah. Listening to this podcast is a great way to get up to speed too, and at least we point <laughs> you in the right direction. But so that, that this is a well suited certificate, if you will, for uh, a video-based learning that I can do at my own pace and focus on one workload and so on. And we, you know, I was one of the people that was designing that course with the MS Learn team and kind of 
giving them guidance on, you know, let's buy the course for an audience of people that actually exist. And one of the things, the big challenges is, is that, you know, this course covers, as you say, like it's teams, it's, it's office add-ins, it's, um, it's SharePoint, it's graph and it's identity. And sure, there are developers out there that cover that whole remit, but you do get people that are just a teams developer and they're just doing identity or they're just doing SharePoint and they're just doing identity. And, and so, you know, we've really built this course as a, um, and it's been the certification's been around for a while, but it, it was really to try and encourage people to be aware of the entire platform, so that when you're building a solution, you're not just thinking of it from the Teams thing; you're thinking about it across the whole, you know, M365 experience. And quite frankly, the best solutions I've seen, or even the best apps in our store, um, are the ones where it follows you around. Like you know, there's an an ad in an Outlook, and then there's a there's a tab and a, you know a message extension the bot in Teams. Um, and then there's something in SharePoint in a web part. Like those are the ones that I find the best because, you know, that way you're get, making the most of the whole M365 platform. And so, the, you know, the certification is that way in line, but it does mean you're likely going to have to learn an area you wouldn't normally be touching in. And that's where I think these exam prep courses are a great way to go. Yeah. So congrats, AC, on getting that out the door finally. Yeah. And then there was one last one you found, didn't you? Yes, uh, the old reliable, when you're confused on something, who do you have describe it? Chris O'Brien. So thanks, Chris, for doing yet again another great blog post. And and Chris, we, we kind of mentioned this before. He has a series going on around Project Cortex. The post that came out this last week is really just discussing what Project Cortex used to be, because now that Viva has launched and SharePoint Syntax has lost, Cortex isn't really a name that's going to be used going forward. So he starts out by describing what the Cortex thing really is nowadays, and then um, goes into this particular one is going deeper in um, form processing. Hey, <laughs> imagine that. You know, it kind of ties in with the with the AI stuff that come out of Azure. So um, it's a great job. It's typical Chris O'Brien, lengthy, well-understood, documented, pretty picture about um, the uh, SharePoint Syntax AI. And uh, the title is uh, Tips for Choosing Between Document Understanding and Form Processing Models. So good uh, good stuff there from Chris. So thanks a lot, buddy. Yeah, that's cool. I always like reading his posts. Often it's, he seems to write it in a voice that's easiest for me to digest that isn't quite as an official as like an official tech writer writing about the same thing. So it's, and visual as well. Yeah, and he's one of the blogs where I'll read it and say, okay, great. But then after I do it, I come back and reread it again and, and fully understand what he says here. So it's perfect to get you started and go deep. So awesome. Cool. Well, who do we have on the show this week? It was another early one, which I wasn't um, going to get up for. <laughs> um, Stefan Bisser came on from um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's hometown. He mentions that in our intro. California? Uh, no, uh, Austria. <laughs> <laughs> which, I'm kidding. Which is why you were sleeping when we talked. But um, Stefan literally wrote a book on conversational AI and the Microsoft platform, talking about the bots and Bot Composer and how it ties in with the cognitive services that we talked about. So um, it was great to uh, get Stefan on and uh, we covered kind of the outline of what he does in the book, which is great. Uh, he's a great presenter, great, very organized. I think it's a great session for folks who are trying to get up to speed on doing bots and conversational AI. And him and I already made a plan to sync up just you know, off, offline type of thing because we're both in a similar space uh, technologically. So great to have him on. So thanks a lot, Stefan, for coming on the show. And I think uh, you all would like it. Cool. Awesome. Well, have a good weekend, man. I'll speak to you soon. All right, see ya.
This week on the podcast, I am delighted to welcome Stefan Bisser. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm hopeful I pronounced your name correctly. I am notorious for messing them up. So thank, yeah, thankfully yeah. this one is pronounced like it says. So will you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? So my name is Stefan. I'm from Austria, uh, as you might hear from my dialect, especially talking not like Schwarzenegger, but uh, a bit like him. Uh, actually, I've grown up in a city which is kind of two kilometers from his uh, birthplace. So I know his, his house uh, of his parents and stuff like that. And I'm uh, working at a company here in, in Austria, in Graz. Um, we're a consulting company um, doing mainly focusing around the modern workplace stuff. So M365 and stuff like that. And me personally, I'm a AI, AI MVP uh, focusing on building chatbots and conversational AI software. So I try to push as much uh, intelligence into the modern workplace as I can. And uh, Stefan's uh, underselling himself. He literally wrote the book on conversational AI. And so um, I, I, I saw that tweet go across my stream. So I wanted to focus on, on that. So let's dive in. What is conversational AI? Uh, yeah, mainly it's kind of a subset or, or, or a special field of artificial intelligence, if you will. And as the name already says, it's about um, the conversation. So it puts the conversation into the centerpiece. Uh, and the goal is primarily to expose like either existing software or new software services as in a conversational interface. So you could basically um, rephrase it as a new UI paradigm, if you will. Taking either existing software or building new software um, with a conversational interface instead of a classical uh, graphical user interface. So when I hear conversational, that to me means bots, right? Yeah. And I'm guessing that's what you mean. But now, when you say about existing interfaces or existing applications, does that mean you're dropping a chat control in places? Or, or what does that kind of mean when you're extending an existing application? Uh, most companies or, or, or most users usually, they use some kind of applications like, um, I don't know, their HR system, their ERP system and stuff like that. And for that, you usually tend to have a graphical user interface where your users can then control the system or the, the, the software uh, itself. But oftentimes it's kind of hard to explain new users to um, get that going into the graphical user interface where the processes and stuff like that can be found. Um, and with replacing that whole graphical UI with a conversational UI, uh, users might have a better time to figure out what they can actually achieve with that piece of software because they just have to talk to the, to the software itself um, with, let's say, a bot or stuff like that, which actually exposes the software to the end user by having a conversation with the bot. So that's primarily the, the thing to transform existing software pieces i don't know the microsoft 365 ecosystem has a lot of apis in there which you could use um, so it's existing software you just wrap around the new ui layer um, if you will okay yeah so leveraging the apis exposed by these yeah. other systems yeah okay excellent yeah, yeah. and so then this other conversation right? we, we said before it, it's bot frameworks and so you give us a little feedback on how you use the bot framework are you in node are you in net are you web-based are you well, rich client what, what give us a feel for what what you think is the best approach to the bot framework stuff as a developer i've gone through the whole ecosystem i guess so i started with node back in the days with version three which is already i guess three or four years ago usually because it was kind of easier to get it going or get started with node because you don't have that visual studio um ecosystem you need to set up because you could use it with notepad plus plus or stuff like that as well um, but these days 
or after that, I transformed uh, or tend to use uh, C Sharp and the whole .NET framework piece to, to build my bots because we're doing that in, in our company as well. We're mainly focusing around C Sharp development for, let's say, backend services. But these days, I try to use Composer where I can or as much as I can because it's just a, a whole different level for building a bot. You just don't need to create a project in any kind of IDE. You don't need to fiddle around with the whole uh, setup stuff. You just open up Composer, create a new bot, get it going in, let's say, two minutes, and then you could just have that graphical user interface for sketching out dialogues and stuff like that, which is kind of easier to sketch out things or to try out new things uh, when you don't have to have that kind of um, setup beforehand um, to, to actually make that work. Okay, so the last time we talked about Composer on the podcast, it was recently acquired by Microsoft. So can let's take a little detour here, a little bit on the on the state of Composer. Obviously, if you're using this to to generate or create your bot conversations, it's is it generally available, or is it good enough for for developer use, or is it even good enough for end user use or power user use yet? It's definitely good enough for developer use. Um, I wouldn't say it's 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 a tool for end users because you need to have that kind of basic skill set. Uh, in terms of what is, let's say, an if statement, how does a for loop work and stuff like that. So you need to have that kind of, let's say, development background. You need to to understand the high-level concepts of um, developing something. But you don't need to necessarily be a hardcore C-sharp or .NET developer or web developer or stuff like that. If you get the, the, the high-level principles, you can, you can achieve a lot with Composer to build your bot. Okay, and so... How does Composer inter- integrate with the you know C sharp code that I've written, or does it replace it, or is there a hook that I can use to to, to leverage it? Um, so you know the cool thing is Composer actually uh, what Composer does in, in the end is to actually generate the code for you. So there's a bit of a, a shift in the paradigm. You don't need to necessarily uh, sketch out or or develop your dialogues in C sharp but you do that with a JSON notation. Um, so it's adaptive dialogues, um, which can then be uh, hooked up in any kind of uh, bot software you want to. But the thing is, Composer actually replaces or, or basically writes the code for you. And if you want to, you can then um, add custom code to it as well. So if you, if you let's say, build a bot in Composer or start with Composer, and then you figure out, okay, there's something missing in Composer, which I can't achieve with Composer um, with the built-in features, I can just say, okay, just give me the code and I'll, uh, I'll put that piece code uh, or add, I'll add that piece code um, to my bot. And then from there, get it going with Composer again. So it's mainly um, switching between Composer and custom code if you need it. So this is one of these personal questions Paul used to ask to make him do his job better. So I, from what I remember around Composer, right, I, and you had said you can generate the adaptive dialogues, but does Compo- Composer wouldn't know about any backend API I want to deal with, like we mentioned at the beginning, right? So is that the kind of the edge case where you would then generate the code and then drop in a call to a system or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah. it's like if you, for for instance, build a bot, which should be um, used for notifying users in, in a proactive way, that's not that's not a feature which Composer actually offers, but it's a feature in the Microsoft Bot Framework. So it's another API route you can hook up into your C-sharp or, or Node project. And if you want to do stuff like that, then you need to just extend the code built by Composer for, uh, for you to have that kind of feature in place and then go back to Composer and bit stuff with, with Composer again. Okay, so 
among the APIs, though, that I would need to call in our conversation is the cognitive services stuff. So is that integrated in Composer or is that all outside? So um, the main cognitive services for building text-based bots like um, a chatbot which runs in Teams where you need Lewis, uh, so the language understanding piece and Q&A maker in most cases for answering questions is built in. So Composer mainly consists of if you create a bot, you can either go with a blank bot or you can already go with a pre-configured Lewis bot if you want to. Uh, and in that kind of um, UI of Composer, you can then define the whole Lewis model. So you don't need to go to the Lewis portal, set up the language understanding application, go back to, to where you develop your code. It's already baked in, into Composer. So you build a bot along with the language understanding model and the same is true for Q&A Maker. So you don't need to go to Q&A Maker, to the portal, create the knowledge base there. You can do it right within Composer. So the main topics, the main services are, are built in. If you want to do stuff with computer vision, of course, there is obviously the HTTP re, uh, request method where you can then just hook up uh, like, in, like in Power Automate, the HTTP request to computer vision, for instance, um, and send a, an image there and get the response back. Okay, and, and so you mentioned it'll actually do the, the work of the portals for Lewis and Q&A Maker, which I wasn't aware of, so, that, so that's good. But as a developer, I really prefer to have the, the LU files or the, or the Q&A files. So does it, does compo when I use Composer to generate my bot, if I export it, do I still get the source of the Q&A Maker knowledge base? Yeah, and I can put that into source control, right? Definitely. It basically, yeah, it basically creates the LU files for you. So um, if you if you hook up the uh, Explorer, um, you just see the different LU files which have been created by Composer for you, and then you can do whatever you want to with them. Same is true for QA Maker. Yeah, which is which is excellent. So the other thing that I struggled with when I was first jumping into the bots is the whole QA Maker and Lewis and Dispatch bit. So is that is Dispatch still a thing when I'm in a Composer bot? Do I still have to, I guess uh, you're shaking your head. Yeah. So what exactly is Dispatch? What is this thing Paul's talking about and how, how do I go about using it? <laughs> so this Dispatch um, mainly will be replaced soon by a new service called Orchestrator, but the, the principles are the same. It's mainly, as the name says, for dispatching between different kind of language understanding applications. So if you build, uh, let's say, a rather um, a bot which is which is which has a rich set of skills where, where you can either go to go through Q&As or you can have like processes built in into your bot where the bot will actually needs some kind of language understanding. It doesn't make sense to have all language understanding pieces put into one um, Lewis app in most cases. So you want to actually um, separate the duties in there. So if you build a bot which has some HR skills in there and might have some IT skills in there, it will make sense to have like the HR department working on the HR pieces and bits uh, and the IT department working on the IT um, bits. Uh, and therefore you, in most cases, set up different kind of Lewis apps and services. Um, and same is true for Q&A Maker. And with Dispatch, you basically have one single endpoint grouping all those kind of language understanding parts and Q&A Maker knowledge bases together, and then decides based on the user's utterance uh, where to route um, the bot to. So does it have to be, uh, th does the, the bot need to, to get the answer from a knowledge base? Is it something which is stored in a language understanding uh, application or stuff like that? So it's basically um, the, the control center of your whole language uh, understanding model, if you will. You know, you mentioned different skills, and I know the bot framework has a, a skills 
capability does does the composer model support bot framework skills sure so with composer you can either build a skill um on its own so if you want to extend a, an already existing bot you've built with um, let's say um the bot framework sdk in in dotnet or in node you can have composer to build a skill which you can then hook up to that bot or if you already built skills, or if you want to use pre-built skills, um, which have been published by Microsoft, you can hook them up um, right within Composer. So there's a there's a separate action for that where you can just hook up the skill, bring that into the conversation, um, and get the flow going. Excellent. Now we've mentioned a few times about using Composer and it, it lets you do this and that. And and one thing you mentioned uh, at the beginning is when designing a chat. And so I want to obviously this is a little bit difficult in audio only, but let's do our best to talk about what does that mean to design a chat. When I'm at the customer um, and they usually they they have never used a bot before in their in their company um, for their for their use case, they they have a hard time imagining imagining how, how that could actually look like. So um, from the very first um, touch point with, or the very first meeting, I actually tend to sketch out the whole dialogue I have in my mind um, and, and represent them with the dialogue already in place. So there are tools um, in the bot framework CLI for that, where you just write a piece of markdown and then you just hook it up to the bot framework emulator to demonstrate how the dialogue would look like. And then um, you can also go with Composer to, to just transform that kind of sketch note you have in your mind or, or the sketch you have um, on paper to a real dialogue, to make it testable, to, to demonstrate it, how it would feel like in Microsoft Teams or in the web chat or in Facebook Messenger or stuff like that. So when you say sketch it out, is that really just you know questions and res uh, responses or is it really a, a graphical type of thing? It's a graphical type of thing. So in Markdown, you basically have the notion of writing what the user says and what the bot says. And in there, you can also define if the bot should respond with, let's say, an adaptive card, for instance. So you can already hook up adaptive cards in there. And you all do that in a Markdown-ish um, kind of style. And then um, these are called .chat files. And you transform them to, to transcript files, which are then being used in the bot framework emulator because the emulator can read transcript files. So you can just open up that transcript file in the bot framework emulator, and you would see how that markdown conversation will look like in, in, in real life in, in the web chat, for instance. So you can see how the adaptive cards will render, how the whole dialogue um, sketch um, should, would work actually with, without any, uh, a single line of, of code. That's a new one for me. I'm going to have to look into that. But so now with this chat file or the transcript file, you said that it's also importable into Composer? No, unfortunately not. No. Um, th okay. that's, that's on my wish list. So I wish I would be able to actually start from the chat file and hook that up to Composer because then it's a no-brainer for, for building a bot. Uh, okay. But at least you, so you use the bot framework emulator in a sit down with the stakeholders, yeah, for example, yeah. and say this, right. Okay. And then I'm guessing a natural offshoot of those conversations is, is commands that would go into the Lewis model and or Q and A, right? Is that, is that what you find now? Yeah. Is that it? Or do I just get an initial meeting and we're done? Or, or how well do you find the Q and A maker and Lewis commands uh, over time? And so, Basically, it's a process which stretches out over weeks or months to refine that model. So it's not only a one shot to create the Lewis model or the language understanding application, and then it's that's it. It's 
basically um, iterating over that, refining that, making making it better, improving it over time. Because uh, another thing you would actually need to do is to gather feedback from your users, check out what users are asking, see if let's say the Q&A maker knowledge base covers all questions which have been asked by my users. Same is true for Louis. Is there something which uh, Louis doesn't understand? Are there utterances in there which can't be interpreted by Louis? So it's mainly a, a process of creating it once and then refining it over time. In your experience or, or in your deployments, if you will, when this refinement has to happen, right? So, so I guess, you know, the, the simple way to start is say, hey, end user or power user, here's the Q&A portal. Go in here and enter your questions. Do you do you still do things that way or are you working with them to get the updated, you know, dot LU files and, and work on the back end process like most developers like to do? <laughs> it's it's kind of both. It, it depends on on which kind of user uh, role sits uh, sits be behind that um, kind of key user. So if it's a mainly business person, they actually don't understand LU, markdown, syntax and stuff like that. So it's kind of hard to to tell them, hey, you need to have your, um, let's say, text editor in there and then hook up the uh, LU files and create the LU files or update them. Um, therefore, I usually tend to, to tell them, hey, uh, focus on the Q&A maker bits and piece and tell us how your users are basically wanna uh, ask questions or, or which kind of processes they have, have to implement it by the bot and which kind of utterances they might ask or, or might um, chat on with the, with the bot and we'll do it. On the other hand, if there's a, if there's a user um, or if the, the users at the, the customers are basically kind of developers or, or semi-developers, you can have, tend to, to give them the LU files, hook them up to Azure DevOps, for instance, for CI CD pipelines uh, and collaborate on LU files and the whole language understanding model uh, in a more efficient way. Okay, so now you're, now my ears pricked up for sure when DevOps <laughs> and CI/CD, because in a previous episode we had just talked to someone using the, the Microsoft 365 CLI. So what CI/CD thing? What, what can I do in cognitive services? Cognitive services space for for CI/CD. What, what what is that? What kind of steps are you doing in that kind of a pipeline like that? If you have the LU files, it's an, it's a no-brainer to check them into any kind of um, version control. So first off, um, we we'll make sure to have that kind of um, version control setup. You 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 see at a glance which pieces in your um, language understanding model changed and stuff like that. And there's a on top of that, there's a feature for Louis where you can actually really have that kind of version control and collaboration um, experience um, for language understanding model. So you basically have your own kind of pipelines and pipeline types for um, LU files or for the whole language understanding model. And does that, do I need to rebuild my bot code and redeploy it or does this work uh, outside of that that code? It's totally separated. So you don't need to touch the, the bot code it's, as long as your bot actually hooks up to Louis because the bot actually just hooks up to Louis um, via the API endpoint. So if you have done that, you can totally separate the duties here. I really like that. Okay. so. When we're around to talking about about you know, deploying or the code and so on, obviously we have a, a bot either in Composer or exported from Composer. What are my deployment? Let's start inside the Composer. What are my deployment options? Is it one button that just magically happens, or do I have to go through a bunch of steps or both? It would be cool to have just one button, but they're they're getting there. Um, so what you need to do first off is to connect to your Azure account. 
obviously, because the whole magic takes place in Azure. So from within the Composer, you just need to hook up to your Azure account. They're working on really signing you in into Composer and then have all your Azure subscriptions in place where you can just then pick and choose from, from either one of those. And then you just need to um, set the build target. So either a web app bot, which is uh, already GA, or a function spot, which, which is still in preview, but you can definitely do that. And then it's just um, clicking the publish button and it will basically um, create all the Azure services from there, um, make sure that Lewis is in place, um, make sure that all the um, web apps are in place, Q&A is in place and stuff like that, application insights will be created. And then it just basically does a zip deploy of your code. So it zips the whole, the whole code and then uploads it onto your Azure web app. Okay, and so you mentioned a web app bot or a function bot. Can we dive a little bit into that? So first of all, what does that really mean? And then which one do you prefer? And do you see any better or worse option? So first off, uh, difference is kind of obvious. Web app bot is just a web application. So it's an Azure app service um, which you utilize. Um, so you need to create the app service plan. You need to create the app service. So basically run a uh, web app um, as a bot where you then deploy your uh, business logic onto. Functions is kind of stateless uh, or serverless thing. And stateless, it was stateless. Um, so that's the, that's the main reason why many folks still use web apps because you don't have that kind of notion of um, managing the state throughout the whole conversational lifecycle and stuff like that because functions didn't support so, uh, some some key pieces in there. That's why it's still preview. Um, but if it would be, let's say, um, kind of parity between either one of both, I would go with functions because first off, it costs uh, much less than compared to, to a web application. Um, with the same kind of features, uh, and it's much easier and more lightweight to to manage um, in the end because it's just a function running somewhere instead of having that kind of web application thing uh, and backend services uh, attached to that. So if I'm in Composer, I need do I need to make that choice? Obviously, to, to deploy, I mean, because obviously writing a controller for a web app is a little bit different than writing a function for a function app. So where, when do I make that choice? When I get started in Composer or at the time it's to click save or export or what's that look like? At the time, you, you so in Composer, you create a publishing profile where you hook up your Azure subscription and stuff like that. And in there, you, you just pick and choose either web app or function because what Composer does, as I said, it just generates the code for you. And the boilerplate code is there for a web app and for a function. So it just then picks and choose either if it's a function bot or a web app bot, which needs to be deployed. Because all the other kind of business logic and stuff like that is, as I said, adaptive dialogue. So it's just JSON files, LU files, Q&A files, which, which then uh, will be attached to that function boilerplate code. Okay, so in theory, I could have multiple profiles if I wanted to yep. pick and choose what I wanted totally. to do. Because I can see, I mean, there have been cases in the past where we've had an API for some system and then adding the web controller for for a bot alongside that app service made sense, and sometimes it doesn't. So yeah. uh, nice that we get those choices. I, re I really like that. The other, the other bit now, you mentioned a couple times about app insights. And so does the bot framework and or composer provide me statistics or is that really just something I need to build myself or what's your experience on that? 
So the bot framework SDK um, has some really nice statistics or, or insights features baked in already, where you can do stuff like how many users use the dialog X for how long and stuff like that, or how many users um, triggered a certain Lewis intent and stuff like that. And these features are starting to um, become available from Composer as well. So you can then just hook up your Azure App Insights um, instance or create, let, let Composer create a new one and then use that kind of um, features which are already baked into the SDK right within Composer as well to have that kind of performance monitoring and kind of adoption monitoring if you want to, to see how your users are using the bot actually. Okay, so uh, again, this is really down deep in the weeds, but when I when I go and create a bot in the Azure Bot Service, I can provide an App Insights ID there, which is different than if I put it in my code. Is this the same kind of distinction that we're talking about here, or is that some old legacy thing, or what? <laughs> yeah, it's, in the in the Azure portal, if you do that, you have that kind of basic statistics um, for let's say how many users use the bot in let's say teams or how many users use the bot in the web chat channel and stuff like that and and those kind of basic key points or or facts you you will um, get them visualized and if you do that right within your code you have a much more spectrum for let's say facts you can then hook up into azure app insights and visualize them and make them available through through your uh, dashboards if you want to. So you can basically hook up everything, every action of your users into an Azure App Insights dashboard to see um, certain things in there. Okay, and now the kind of the last thing that comes to mind when talking about bots and so on is, is how a user interacts with those. And I know that in the bot framework world, those are called different channels. And so let, let we give us a high level of what the channels are. And then my big question is, what, what's the difference between them from a developer perspective? What do I have to do to support these different things? Okay, so so channel is mainly the surface um, or, or the communication platform your users will be using when interacting with your bot. So it could be Microsoft Teams, it could be a web chat component, which you can place on a website, it could be Facebook Messenger, um, could be SMS or text messaging. Um, and these days uh, in preview, it could be telephony as well, where you could just call your bot. So it's mainly the the conversational canvas or the, the platform your users will be using to interact with the bot. And as I said, it's not only Microsoft um, first-party channels, it's also third-party ones um, like Facebook Messenger and Slack and stuff like that. And therefore, you as a developer, you would need to actually first off think about which kind of channels you want to target because not every channel supports each and every, um, let's say, action or, or component you have in your bot. So speaking about, let's say, adaptive cards, they're supported in Microsoft Teams, they're supported in web chat, but they're obviously not supported in a text message because a text message is just uh, text, um, can't render any kind of images and cards and stuff like that. So you would first off think about which kind of channels you want to target and then think about which kind of channel supports which kind of components. So if you want to, you can build one bot for all channels, but then you would need to make sure that in your code, you have some kind of, um, let's say, um, switch statements, for instance, in the easiest way to see if it's the channel Facebook Messenger, then I need to do this. If it's Teams, then I can um, send an adaptive card uh, for the users and stuff like that. So I like that idea. Well, you said, hey, one not to do it all, but I'm guessing if I've done Composer and the dialogues 
are in uh, separate files and the cognitive services are separate, it's really not that hard to have two bots with the same type of cognitive services back end, right? Yeah, true, true. Excellent. So th this is all, all very helpful. And I, and I want to get some thoughts from you about the, you know, the futures of this conversational AI. You mentioned already about orchestrator coming uh, instead of dispatch. But do you see uh, lots of room for growth here? Is the in in improvement something? I guess what I'm getting at is do us developers need to do something more? Or do you think it's more of a function of the, the services Microsoft's providing is getting much better or both? <laughs> yeah, it's mainly both. I guess Microsoft is working on a lot of different things out there um, and a lot of different teams working on bits and, bits and pieces which could be helpful for folks building bots so you don't know you don't have only the um, bot framework team you have the power virtual agents team which obviously just also basically offers a, a kind of tool for building bots um, and all of those teams build different services or offerings around building conversational software. And of course, within the Microsoft stack, there are a lot of pieces and places you can um, you can go to and hook up into your bots use case, like um, the whole graph um, scene, where you have a lot of different API endpoints and use cases you can tackle when you're within your bot, and obviously all the other um, new bits and pieces which they have announced recently. So that's excellent stuff. Thank you very much. And again, now the book is the, well, what's the title of the book? We've talked about it. I hate to send people to the wrong place. So what, what's the title of your book? The book is uh, Microsoft Conversational AI Platform for Developers, um, published by Press. I guess we, we have some kind of show notes, so I'll make sure you have the link in the show notes as well. Excellent. And, and um, it's... Uh, Available now. Uh, by the time you listen to this, we it's all out there. I know that with Ignite, maybe Definitely. maybe delayed in the listening, but uh, excellent to see. If folks have questions about this stuff for you, is there an easy way in social media for them to reach out to you? Yeah, just just reach out to me on Twitter at Stefan Bisser, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It was great to get the insights. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. For listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. 